Hello and welcome back to Living on a Changing Planet. My name is Carter Powis. I'm a climate scientist and economist from Toronto, Canada, and I am joined today, as always, by my co-host Patrick, who is a clinical psychologist from Oxford, England. Patrick, how are you doing? Hello. Hi, Carter. How are you doing today? I'm a little sick, which you can probably hear in my voice, uh, which is doubly disappointing because we have a rare opportunity to have you and I and our guest all physically in the same room for the episode recording. But instead, we're all sitting in our separate offices, which, um, you know, I guess it is what it is. Really excited today to speak with Dr. Yedvinder Mali, who is a professor of ecosystem sciences at the University of Oxford and the director of the Leverhulme Center for Nature Recovery. Yedvinder is widely recognized as one of the world's leading experts on tropical forests and climate change. And we'll be speaking about topics including the impact of climate on tropical forests and biodiversity and the emotional implications of that reality. Because I think for many people, seeing wide-scale changes in the plants and animals that we grew up with and, and learned to love is one of the most concrete and disturbing uh, consequences of a changing climate. So with that said, Yedvinder, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. I have to say this, this this one I'm quite I'm I'm I feel I feel nervous today can I explain why I feel nervous nervous and excited because this is this is an area that um when we're talking about biodiversity and biodiversity loss this is one of my big triggers this is one of the things that obviously we've been talking in on and off about climate anxiety this whole series this is one of the things I find really hard you know I can't watch David Attenborough anymore you know or I can't you know I'm really this is one of the things I really really struggle with but I'm really, really, it's something I care really passionately about. So I'm really, really excited, uh, Yudvinder. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's start off, Yudvinder, with the same question we ask all of our guests to start the episode. Can you tell us the story of how you first came to learn about climate change? I first uh, heard about it in the 1980s. So I went to university uh, to, to do a degree in physics, thinking I would want to be an astronomer. And while I was there, this is the late 1980s, climate change was increasingly rising up the agenda. That that was the uh, the first time I think it was becoming something more than a few scientists and activists talking about climate change to it being starting to be taken seriously by by, by governments. And that led to Rio in the 1990s and so on. So I think it was as an undergraduate that I really... I mean, got to grips with it as, as a concept overall. And I think it was quite influential for me. Uh, I realised that understanding the Earth system and the climate was where I wanted my science to go uh, and to focus much more on this as, as the issue of our time uh, and ultimately became a big focus of, of my working life. If I can push you gently, Yedvinder, you didn't speak much about how that experience made you feel. Have you found that your emotional relationship with climate change has evolved since the 1980s as you have learned more about it and as it's progressed? Well, absolutely, the relationship has changed. When I was first looking into this topic, we were at 350 ppm CO2. And the debate was about whether we should stay at 350 or below 400. And certainly 
all our projections, all, all the work we were doing was about climate change as something in the future, whether the near future or the distant future, it was something in the future that we needed to deal with. And that is completely different from where we are now, 40 years later, where climate change is around us, impacting us in many different ways. So it's, we're embedded in climate change viscerally in a way that we weren't in the 1980s, where it was still of concern, but it was a large, largely an intellectual focus uh, in, in thinking about this and how to deal with it. We've, we've, you know, we've, we've spoken to people this this series whose focus might be on future risk, trying to estimate future risk, you know, tipping points, timelines. One of the things that strikes me potentially about the work that you've been doing is you've been charting change that's already happening to, in terms of ecosystems around the world. Talk to me a little bit about because, and that, I, 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 my my assumption, I could be completely wrong about this. But my my assumption is that's probably been one of the more measurable effects of the changing climate these past couple of decades. And I suppose I'm sort of, I'm coming from a knowledge and a background of having spoken with other climate scientists who have been charting change that's already happening, obviously things going in the wrong direction, um, as being one of of those sort of groups of people that that actually really struggled with the kind of, the, the psychological aspects of the work that they do, you know. So... I'm just thinking kind of the work you've done these past decades. Um, it must have been tough. I don't know. I don't know if you even have a question at this stage, but uh, <laughs> you must have you must have seen a lot of change these past, you know, since since the 1980s. In, in, in my interests in ecosystems, much of my focus uh, has been on, on the biosphere, on biodiversity. And frankly, up until now, the major cause of biodiversity decline and loss. It has been habitat conversion, deforestation, land use change, intensification of farming systems. And climate change to now is a relatively minor player in there. And what we're seeing it is definitely there. We're seeing changes in the structure and functioning of even the remotest tropical forests that are linked to atmospheric change in one way or another. But the uh, but in terms of the, the instantaneous causes of despair or anguish or, or anger, it is loss of the of the biosphere through direct uh, deforestation or conversion to the biosphere. I think where climate change comes in is as we go into the next few decades, whether these gradual incremental shifts within the biosphere uh, risk at some point becoming fundamental tipping points or shifts in the system with, uh, uh, where, where the, suddenly the, the rate of ecosystem degradation or loss caused by climate change or climate change interacting with other factors Land like land use change becomes a, a overwhelming. So, uh, so yes, there is this concern uh, uh, around biodiversity loss. But at the moment, climate change is is the threat that's approaching us, rather than the threat that's immediate in front of us. I think one of the most important benefits that comes from speaking to scientists about climate change is it gives us, or gives the layman, the non-scientist, the ability to um, calibrate your fears, to learn about what are the real threats from climate change, what are the things that I should be worried about, and what are the things that I should not be worried about. So as you just explained, climate change is not currently a major driver of loss of biodiversity, but it is poised to become one. When you think about the Amazon rainforest or tropical forests globally, they are one of the world's 
largest reserves of biodiversity of non-human life what are what threats does climate change pose to these ecosystems what are the things that we should be worrying about and what are the things that we should not be worrying about like for example one thing that you hear a lot is this idea of a tipping point where the climate may shift so substantially that the amazon rainforest rapidly collapses um Another thing that you often hear in the media is this uh, this soundbite that the Amazon is the lungs of the planet and that if we lose the Amazon forest, we will run out of oxygen to breathe. Could you speak a little bit about um, what the real risks are to tropical forests and also what are some risks that are not based in science and we really shouldn't spend our time worrying uh, about? Yes, uh, yeah. so the Amazon was a big focus of, of my research for, for, for several decades and trying to understand what the risk was of large-scale loss of the Amazon due to climate change. And this became an issue around the 2000s when the, the first coupled climate biosphere models started being created. And one of the early predictions that one of the most prominent of these models made was that the climate change would cause substantial loss and release of carbon from the biosphere uh, turn the Amazon into a drier climate, which could then no longer support rainforest, even if, even if we stopped deforestation and tried to restore it. And these couple models were important because they were the first models that had the atmosphere talking to the biosphere in the model and the biosphere talking to the atmosphere. Up to then, the atmosphere just took whatever was on the surface, in this, on the land surface in this model, and, and, and predicted climate based on that. But in, the, in these models, the surface was responding to, to, to the atmospheric conditions. Uh, and uh, so we embarked on a series of experiments. We did a long-term drought experiment with, with, with colleagues in Brazil and Edinburgh uh, for a while to look at how forests responded to drought in, in the long term in the Amazon. And uh, it was apparent that these early models were very simplistic. They, they approximated the, the condition as either rainforest or grassland. There was no subtlety uh, in what uh, could exist in a given climate in the Amazon. And when we looked more closely at this and brought in some of the ecological complexity, we, we found that uh, some of those transitions became more gradual, less of a tipping point, and more of a gradual change over time. Uh, uh, but the other thing that we hadn't factored in into those early models, which are all about climate change, was the interaction between land use change and climate change. So the fact that as more and more of the Amazon got deforested, that caused a reduction in rainfall, that caused local drying, but also it provided points at which fire used to manage pasture lands could, could leak into the forest. And then this interaction between land use change and fire and climate change uh, turned out to be a much more important factor than the climate change alone and the simple models that we had. So where we are now is... We're seeing evidence of these interactions playing out in the Amazon. So we're seeing areas of the Amazon that seem to be getting hotter, more fire-prone, where the, the the death of the Amazon is is spreading beyond the immediate deforestation. It is still fairly limited in the Amazon, and I what I do tend to caution against is the very negative, simplistic portrayal of the Amazon is going to disappear in the next few decades, or the Sometimes you hear stories of the Amazon being turned into a Sahara, into some desert with sand dunes. That's not going to happen. The, the climate system won't go that extreme. And, uh, uh, and that can be 
Uh, yeah, I, I don't know whether that's helpful or not. Those those, those things, and obviously, there's a need to draw alarm by by those scenarios. But I think when we have scenarios that are so divorced from the ecological reality, I think it doesn't help us win uh, hearts on the ground of people living at the frontier and working 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 with the frontier here. Uh, oh, and, and another example of the macro scale is around uh, uh, the oxygen story. So uh, uh, there's lots of important reasons to. Uh, preserve the Amazon. Uh, it's, it contains about a third of planetary biodiversity. It's a huge store of carbon. It uh, recycles water to the atmosphere. That's a major part of driving the global atmospheric circulation. But there are also things that are that are slightly uh, widespread myths. And one of those is that most of our oxygen comes from the rainforests. And uh, uh, I wrote a piece about this a few years ago that showed that as almost as much oxygen is consumed by the rainforest as is produced by the rainforest. Uh, because of the decomposing organisms the, uh, in, in, uh, that are consuming oxygen as much as the plants are producing it. And we have a huge amount of oxygen in the atmosphere, uh, uh, 21,000 parts per million compared to 360 or 400 parts per million for, for carbon dioxide. We're not going to run out of oxygen on the scale of millions of years. Uh, so there are lots... Uh, and. Uh, and it was important to, to clarify this, and I wrote a blog piece clarifying this, and actually got a fair bit of backlash from people who were upset and suspected my motives. Uh, this is the time of the Amazon fires of 2019 and whether I was uh, either in, in the pay of, of, of the, the, the Brazilian government or others uh, to, to say things like that. And uh, some of my, the, the quote I remember was somebody accusing me of sitting on my throne of scientific precision, uh, watching my publication indices go up while the world burns around me. <laughs> so, so, you know, there's a... Uh, some people actually want the catastrophic story to, to be there because they need that. And I think, I think I, one other story I remember was people feeling they were bo- people were bored with carbon. Uh, carbon's been around as, a, as an alarm thing for, for decades and oxygen was something that could get people much more alarmed and much more active. So whether it was true or not, it seemed to be irrelevant. <laughs> and going from, going from the, the, if you like, the macro level down to the micro again, and I've I've a vested interest, I suppose, in this in this in the following question. In the sense, it's the place that it's the place that I I love very dearly. But I know that you, uh, on a local level, um, you've established a forest ecology and climate change monitoring station in Whiteham Woods in Oxford. And my backstory is so I I before I studied in Oxford, at Oxford, I grew up there, and and uh, my. My best friend growing up, I think his his father was in charge of the research program in the woods when we were kids. So he lived in the chalet, in the centre of these woods, and we would we, we would uh, we would spend our afternoons just kind of exploring these woods. And I've such a I've got such an incredible. Uh, it feels like home, you know, these woods. It's just a, a place of huge. I feel a sense of real guardianship uh, and love for. So I'm I'm really interested in kind of in your the programs of research that obviously have taken you all around. The, the world, different forest ecosystems, uh, rainforest spanning continents, and they're also doing something right on the right on the doorstep in Oxford as well. And I think for people, obviously, people will be listening. Well, hopefully, we're listening to this from all around the world. But for those who are listening from the UK, you know, who I think might you know be interested in the kind of what the local picture looks like. Have you, do you have any sort of emerging data from from what's happening, you know, in and around in and around Oxfordshire and, and how, how how the changing climate is 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 playing out there? Yes, uh, so we started this work in Whiteham Woods uh, around 10, 15 years ago. Uh, 
partially because it was interesting in itself, partially also as a place to try out ideas or students before sending them off to the Amazon or the Congo, uh, far-flung places as well. Uh, and uh, But I think another reason was the, the importance of having this connection to to your local nature, to your local environment. That, that it was, I still passionately believe about the future of the rainforest and the importance of rainforests, but they were always a plane ride away. And, uh, and I felt something was missing unless you have that connection to the nature around you that surrounds you. Uh, and Whiteham uh, provided that uh, to me. It, from, from my start of my work there, and particularly so in the last few years with the pandemic, it became this, this both the, uh, a scientific resource, but also a psychological and spiritual resource uh, 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 in, in the surrounding environment. Now, in terms of the science that, that we do there, there's, there's huge amounts uh, going on. Uh, one of the most prominent things that we did, uh, like we do in the Amazon, is describe the cycling of carbon and nutrients and energy in, in the woodland. And what we find in Whiteham Woods is that it, it's increasing in biomass over time. Uh, a little bit like what the Amazon is doing, but the Amazon, it's doing it probably because the at- atmosphere is changing and higher carbon dioxide is stimulating the growth of the forest. In Whiteham, this is a legacy of the past history of, of, of forests. So Whiteham is like almost every other woodland in, in, in Western Europe, has this long history of management uh, of various forms, even if it's an ancient woodland. Uh, and yet, from, when the, uh, from the mid-20th century, when the university took it over, there's been gradually a reduction in the intensity of how it's managed. It was and from the 60s, it was more or less left to its own devices. It became a site where the primary focus was to understand ecological processes, the natural ecological processes. So in some ways, it, it could be considered an early rewilding. Uh, this term that's become very popular now, Whiteham, if ecologically, was, was something like that since the 1960s. And so we're seeing this forest recovering and growing, increasing in biomass. It's increased in biomass by around... Uh, uh, 10% in the last decade alone. So it's a, uh, and it's absorbing carbon from, from, uh, from the atmosphere. That may all change. You know, one, one thing that's coming through Whiteham now is ash dieback, which is a, a, a disease that's killing ash is about a third of the trees in the woodland, and many of them will die as this disease goes through. And uh, one underappreciated part of global change is the increasing spread of diseases, uh, whether in animals or, or in plants. As there's increasing connectivity between different regions, as as trade uh, and, tra- and travel increases that connection, so we're seeing diseases are a natural part of ecosystems, but we're seeing increased recurrence of, of these diseases, and that and so that this is probably in some way like white is probably the largest agent of global change, far more than climate change or or and there's no land use change within within white of a major uh, sense there, and so we're trying to understand the dynamics of that, uh, not only in the, you know, the purely negative sense of what it's going to do in terms of biomass and carbon, but also to understand how ecology responds to change. Everything, in any change, there are winners and losers, whether it's climate change or, uh, or, or disease. And we're trying to understand how the dieback of the ash will cascade through an ecosystem, which species will benefit, which species will lose, and what the future ecosystem of the woods will, will, will look like. I want to go back a couple of minutes to our discussion about tipping points and deoxygenization. I think some people listening to this episode may be concerned about the amount of time that Patrick and I have spent speaking to experts, debunking myths about possible 
catastrophic scenarios related to climate change. Um, I want to be clear that not only are some of these scenarios, the ones that we have discussed in this podcast, not based in fact, and that it's just, it's important to understand the world around us accurately. Um, and it's not useful to worry about something that is not going to happen. That's point one. But point two, pushing these narratives, um, the sort of doomist narrative that there's nothing that we can do, the world is going to end tomorrow, um, doesn't have the effect that many people think it does. It doesn't inspire action. It very much does the opposite. Um, and so one of the reasons that I want to debunk these myths as we come across them is that it's not, it's not conducive to taking action on climate change. With that said, Yidvinder, I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about what the real concerns are. We don't need to worry about a sudden collapse of the Amazon or running out of oxygen as a result. What are the things that we do need to worry about? Because there are things that we need to worry about. Climate change is a pressing problem. And I think that the pressing problem of our generation, and I think that this is something that people really struggle to do, hold these two contradictory um, ideas in their head at the same time. One, that climate change does not mean imminent disaster tomorrow all at once. But two, it is an incredibly severe and pressing problem. So anything that you can say about the true nature of the risk related to tropical forests and biodiversity would be very much appreciated. And, and actually, maybe just because this is, I think, one of the most amazing things that I ever learned, and I learned in your class, you mentioned earlier the idea that the Amazon rainforest plays a key role in regulating rainfall patterns and atmospheric circulation all over the world. <clears throat> this is the concept called the, the biotic pump. So many people think that rain makes forests, but in fact, forests make rain. And the way they do this is twofold. One, forests release spores and pollen and tiny particulate matter, um, which gets caught up in turbulence caused when wind hits the top of trees and breaks up. And convection, because trees are dark colored, so they heat up readily, they absorb lots of sunlight, which causes this particulate matter to rise into the air. And that provides um, seeding for clouds. Water moisture in the air above the forest can condense around, they need a particle to condense around to form rain. So the forest provides these particles which allow water to condense, form raindrops, form clouds, and then rain. And the most amazing thing is that when it rains, the pressure in the atmosphere above a forest drops because the amount of water vapor in that atmosphere has decreased. When a low-pressure system forms, the atmosphere around it pushes new air into the low-pressure system to raise the pressure and try and equilibrate to get the same pressure everywhere. What this does is draws new water vapor into the air above the forest from the air that surrounds it. That water vapor then condenses, falls as rain, and then draws more water vapor in again from the atmosphere that surrounds it, creating this endless cycle of drawing water vapor in, causing it to fall as rain, 
and then replacing it. And I've always thought it's just so cool. As a result, the Amazon rainforest is a major influence on rainfall and atmospheric circulation patterns all over the world as far as Tibet. Uh, and that's not something that we want to to mess with. So with that said, Yidvinder, maybe you can talk a little bit about what the real risks are related to climate change and uh, loss of tropical forests. Uh well, I think my overall approach to this is is as a, a clear-eyed, pragmatic reality of what, of what is going on there, as as much as as is possible. And so, there is certainly major risk of large-scale loss of tropical forests through land use change combined with climate change uh, interacting there. Uh, what, uh, and I think that that's enough of an issue to deal with. I suppose what avoiding the purely catastrophic narrative does is give us realistic timescales of decades to try and deal with this. I think the danger with some of the catastrophic narratives, whether it's in climate change or others, is that unless you dig in a bit deeper, it almost gives a sense of fatalism. You know, we may say, oh, we've got 10 years to save the planet or 10 years to save the Amazon. Well, we're not going to save either in 10 years. And if we get there, I think to a lot of people, that ends up just being a, a, leaves a sense of gloom and despair, that there's nothing, they feel powerless. But if we realise that just like catastrophe is not sudden, resolution is also not sudden, it's, it's incremental, and we have to just work for those forces of resolution and solution to work at a faster pace than the forces of destruction uh, uh, to make the change. And all the change is always incremental. We have to move at pace, there's no doubt about it, uh, because, because the threats are there. And I think that's perhaps that's what's avoided by this sense of cliff edges that we're falling off. The sense of either it's all now, and if we don't do everything now, it's all over, and we might as well despair. You know, I spend a lot, of, a lot of my time, obviously, talking with people about their sort of climate and planetary health-related emotions. You know, things like grief and loss and mourning for the change that's already happened. And time and time again, people will, when they talk about loss, they talk about about habitat loss, about loss of, of biodiversity. That if if it's have you? I mean, have, have, is that is that an emotion you've kind of you must have encountered huge losses, huge biodiversity losses? How have you? This might be an impossible question, but how have you sort of managed the, the if you like, the emotional burden of that information? Uh, that, that, that is an challenging question. And certainly, there have been times when I, I've studied a forest and then come back ten years later, and that forest is now a cattle ranch. Uh, it's, it's been cleared whether legally or Ill- illegally. And and you remember those moments you'd had in that forest, that the sounds you'd heard, the birds you'd heard, uh, and the majestic trees, and, and it's not there. And there is inevitably a, a big sense of loss, of, some, of something personal uh, quite lost there. Uh, I guess in my case, now how, do, how do I channel that? I think I channel, I channel that into a determination to try and keep fighting the fight or to, or to, to make uh, make things uh, better whether uh, the fight doesn't uh, isn't always practically on the ground it's in trying to understand what's going on the macro scale and the drivers and the change changes there uh, and uh, uh, and uh, and then seeing how in changing our values of what this forest is can, can, can help uh, preserve them there's, there's a quote I, I dug it out again because I, I thought uh, uh, it, uh, it, it always inspires me, uh, and it's from from uh, uh, Václav Havel. So this is again in the late 1980s when the uh, you know, when the Cold War was coming to an end, and I was a student, and I was 
uh, the Berlin Wall had come down and uh, lots of friends in Eastern Europe at that time. And this is a great quote from Harvel, which I, I love, which is, hope is a state of mind, not a state of the world. It is a deep orientation of the human soul that can be held at the darkest times. An ability to work for something because it is good, not just because it has a chance to succeed. And so in there, part of this is this drive because you know what needs to be done, even when you're surrounded by the despair. And that keeps you going, not because you think, oh, it's, I might as well do this because, uh, and it's fatalism. There is an optimism that something can be done better if, if, if you keep, uh, keep, keep working at it. Speaking of optimism that things could be done better, let's talk a little bit about the Leverhulme Center for Nature Recovery and the concept of rewilding and how rewilding can be used to regionally and locally reverse the declining trends in biodiversity and how that might make our ecosystems more resilient to the climate change which, which we know is coming. And maybe why, um, maybe why having a narrative that we, we can make a difference on biodiversity, we can improve outcomes locally is, is so important. Yeah, I'll give you a little bit of background to this as well. Uh, and that, uh, as somebody who worked in the tropics uh, for a long time, uh, and so again continues to, the one refrain that I always got, which I, uh, in places like Brazil and others, often from, from local cattle ranchers and others, is, what are you doing coming here, uh, telling us what to do with our forest, when you're living in a, amongst the most deforested landscapes on earth, and you're, the nation that you live in became prosperous, partially on the back of clearing its forests and putting agricultural landscapes in there as well. And uh, there's lots of reasons that that argument can be picked apart in terms of biodiversity value and this history and and whether there are pathways for development that don't involve massive destruction uh, of the environment that can still provide prosperity. Uh, uh, And so there are things there. But but I think that there is a nugget of truth in there as well, that we'd come back and look at the, the landscapes of the UK Amongst scores consistently amongst the lowest levels in terms of uh, many, many metrics of biodiversity. And so you know, for a while, I was thinking it'd be good to, uh, to do something locally uh, in that context. And, uh, the, uh, and, and the other thing, I think this was amplified by the lockdowns and, and, and the pandemic, where I spent a lot of time wandering around the Oxfordshire landscape, visiting farmers, uh, uh, visiting white and other places, and thinking... There's an important narrative there as well about regeneration and recovery that we need to do because there's only so much despair and gloom and, and holding back the, the, the tide of, of biodiversity loss uh, functions of the narrative. It's still important. We still need to protect tropical forests. None of that changes. But if we can also couple that with a narrative of, yes, there is a chance to regrow and, re, uh, and bring back nature, uh, uh, I think that that can be quite a powerful story to tell, and I and I think there's a resonance in the last few years around this uh, uh, that uh, how concepts like rewilding and others have taken off is that people need a story of positive action and hope uh, uh, to give them purpose and meaning and engagement, and also they need local stories. That it's one thing that we can watch something about elephants in Africa or the Amazon rainforest, and that maybe give money to a to a charity to, to go off and, 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 and work there. But it's still quite dis, disempowering. And the, if you can do things in your local landscape, you can feel much more empowered. And I think that also feeds through into your own mental health and ability of 
have a sense of agency in the world, which I think uh, it's very hard to do when, when the issues you're concerned about are either huge in scale, like climate change, or on the, they are on the other side of the planet, like, like rainforest loss. So I think this story of recovery both brings, has a scientific validation, as important as a story of, uh, of hope and positivity, uh, uh, and also gives a sense of agency because it's in the immediate surroundings there. And those things, those factors are the things that, that drive it. And they probably drive me as well. And I think uh, over the last few years, I felt more and more the need to, to engage with these, these more local issues. Uh, and this led to, with, with a large number of colleagues across Oxford, to put in this bid for this large centre to focus on this challenge. And the, and the bid we've given, the challenge we've given ourselves in the centre is, what does it take to deliver nature recovery at scale and speed that is both socially inclusive and ecologically effective. And that's a huge ask. Uh, and we don't know how we're going to answer that, but we've got economists and anthropologists and psycho- psychiatrists and ecologists and, uh, uh, and a whole other range of specialities thinking through, through this issue, focusing on part, uh, partially at, at larger scales, but also in particular landscapes like Oxfordshire, like the central Scottish Highlands, like the cocoa landscapes of Ghana. And we're, we're finding more and more landscapes that, that we want to, to focus on. Because the will is there, uh, whether it's from companies or whether it's from the UN or from governments saying we want nature recovery, we want to reverse biodiversity loss. But we've never actually had any experience of doing this at scale before. And so this is the challenge that we're trying to, to work out. And the nice thing, the other nice thing about this is because the will is there, it's nice to be working on something where you're trying to enact that will and uh, to work with people and say, These are the, you want to do this, this is how to do that. Uh, whereas in much of my life has been, has been and still is, uh, necessarily fighting against people who want to do the opposite of what you want to do uh, as well. So, so it is quite nice to work with power rather than fight the power. <laughs> that, that does sound kind of nice, actually. Maybe I should consider switching fields. Uh, one last thing that I'd love to speak about with you is your experience as a teacher. You spend a fair portion of your time educating young people on topics related to the natural world and climate change's impact on the natural world. I have to imagine that's been equal parts difficult and rewarding, being the purveyor of bad news as well as messages of hope. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your approach and your experience and what you've learned um, working with young people on the topic of, of climate change? Well, so certainly uh, in teaching and engaging youth and uh, and the master students of which you were once a cohort is, is, is a key part of that engagement. And I find immensely rewarding and immensely inspirational because people come with such uh, different expertise, different backgrounds, but so much energy uh, to do something to, to make to make the world a better place. As, as part of that, there is always this wrestling uh, with with despair and anxiety at loss uh, uh, there as well. And I think, in some ways, that fulcrums become more intense over the, the narrative over the last few years. On one hand, these very strong messages about action. At the same time, this narrative around. Uh, 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 Ten years to save the planet, uh, etc. The sense of immediate crisis, which uh, which uh, 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 which you know, which I think uh, d- does lead to, to high degrees of anxiety. Uh, 
I, in terms of my approach, I, I do perhaps do both in my teaching as, as much as I can, but also in my action, just 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 try and focus on this this uh, positive message of this is the time to do things. This is the time to step up and find solutions and, and work on them. Uh, and it can't be a naive optimism. Uh, and uh, certainly, we don't want, want something that that simply says, "Oh, it's all going to be okay." And you know, we, we, uh, it, uh, it's got to be a clear-eyed about the challenges that we face and, and how to how to work through them. The other thing I think is also important is when we focus on solutions, is that they're solutions that are genuinely scalable. The, the other danger is finding some boutique little project somewhere that makes you feel better about nature. Uh, uh, and that things are okay, and then maybe that provides some emotional prop and emotional stability. But that that can also be a danger if that detracts attention from the the more fundamental, scalable, systematic challenges that are needed to, to, to solve the problem fundamentally. So we need to avoid uh, naive panaceas and also small scale boutique optimism. We need to focus on a a pragmatic clear-eyed, but nevertheless optimism still about, about a better future. Because I, I don't think we have time to be pessimistic. I don't think we can afford to be gloomy. Uh, we, we have to have that, uh, this clear-eyed approach to, to, to improve things. Speaking of not being gloomy when it comes to the state of nature, I read two books while taking your course, which really changed my perspective on the state of the natural world and our role in helping nature recover. The first was Inheritors of the Earth by Chris Thomas. And the second was Feral by George Monbiot. Are there any other books that you would add to this list, Yedvinder, that you think our listeners should go and check out if they are interested in rewilding or nature or they're struggling with the impacts of climate change on nature and they want to read something that gives them that clear-eyed view to you know a path forward that makes the world better. Yeah, there's a, there's a huge amount of literature coming through. I think the perhaps the most feral was iconic in the whole rewilding movement. I think another one that was immensely powerful is Wilding by Isabella Tree that is based on this 20 years of experience around an estate in Sussex. And what was really powerful about that is that it was based on actual experience, ecological insight and what had happened rather than just people advocating change. And I've come across numbers of farmers and others who read that book and said, I want to do something different on my land. I was so inspired by the, by that book. Uh, uh, other ones I would, I would I mentioned just two that I've been reading in the last few months, so the, the, the top of my head. George, in some, in some ways, George Monbiot's sequel, Regenesis, which looks at the challenge of reconciling uh, our food system and feeding ourselves and the needs there with a wider world. And we might want to rewild half, half the UK, but what, we, what would we do with our food system? Would we just displace that to Brazil and cause more biodiversity loss? And he really addresses the, that challenge at systemic level from, from the local nature all the way through to the global food system. And the other one I, I just mentioned is, uh, I think beyond all this, a key thing is to to have our connection to nature. It's really, really, really important that you know, we can have a lot of intellectualization about biodiversity and the benefits it provides us. But one thing that's become even more apparent, I think, through, through the pandemic is the intrinsic value the natural world has 
for our well-being, for our sense of purpose and meaning on Earth. And uh, part of that, I, I think, comes from also developing a humility that nature isn't there to provide us ecosystem goods or services or natural capital or those phrases. It's actually the community of beings that have co-evolved with us to make this planet of which we're embedded in. And I think uh, sometimes our thinking is very anthropocentric. It's always about what nature can do for us. And actually a big part of embedding in nature is to have the humility to realize that we are just one part of this amazing community of beings around us and forms. And one book I've just been reading at the moment, it only came out uh, a couple of days ago, so it's, it's very timely. It's called An Immense World by Ed Young, who's a fantastic writer. And he actually looks at the sensory world of other animals, how animals uh, communicate by uh, uh, by smell or sonar, all these things. But his ult ultimate... Uh, framing is that every animal lives in their own sensory world some of those that which partially overlap with others so others are which are totally inaccessible but it gives you this sense of this immense mystery of nature around us that we often get blasé about we often start thinking about you know, oh that's another bat over there just whizzing around at sunset or that's a dog sniffing around but actually there's wonder and mystery in, in all, all the creatures around us, whether and not just animals, but also plants and fungi and other components. So I think those, those are just two recent books that I've read that have inspired me. That, and, and I think that it's important to be inspired by nature as well as concerned by it. And that this is a really important part of our reconnecting to nature that we need to make. Alright, episode 7, Yedvinder Mali. When we originally sketched out what we wanted to achieve with this first season, we made a list of the various types of conversations that we wanted to have. And one of those was around the loss of the natural world. Because this is the most visceral and present manifestation of a changing climate that we could think of. And it's intimately associated with grief, which is a very important emotion when you're thinking about living on a changing planet. Uh, I once heard grief described as a desire for the world to be different in a way that it cannot be. It's a rebellion against reality. Patrick, does that spark any particular thoughts for you i'd love to hear when you're dealing when you're helping a patient deal with grief either in their personal lives or as a result of climate change um, how do you do that productively well it's yeah it's that's a great quote right because it it conceptualizes grief in the broadest sense possible that we're not just talking about when people die of course that is what you know what a lot of our sort of I suppose therapeutic understanding of grief comes from when people lose people. Um, 
but it's much broader than that. Yeah, as you say, it's the rebellion against the world being um, irrevocably different to what you want or need it to be. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll go on and talk about, I mean, so a potted history, if you like, of, of our understanding of grief. We had um, the kind of five stages model uh, to begin with, which is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's um, kind of, and that was, this is where we talk about um, denial, bargaining, etc., cetera, um, anger and acceptance ultimately. But, you know, I think we've, we've sort of moved on from that in a way um, because I think there was a sort of expectation that we need to go through all of those stages um, and, and sequentially, et cetera. Um, we talk about all kinds of different things now in the context of grief. I like to talk about grief not as a, a process with stages, but rather tasks that you need to, that, that ideally one would achieve. So uh, accepting the reality of the, the loss, for example, or, or investing in the new um, in the in the new the world as it exists without that person or without or, or you know without that um, uh, that without that that lost idea whether it's a person or a, as we're going to talk about uh, nature and now there's a great uh, great psychologist kind of climate psychologist here in the UK called Ro Randall and she um, she wrote a great paper kind of looking at how best to conceptualise grief from a from a nature perspective, from a climate perspective. Um, and she talks about there being almost like a sort of typology of loss. So you have absolute loss when, when something has gone and it's caught and it's gone forever. And this is, you know, this is a, you know, extinction classically or, um, death, death, right. Death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you know, species extinction, biodiversity, loss, irre- irre- irreversible biodiversity loss. Uh, so loss can be absolute. It can also be chosen, you know, that we might decide to forego something in our lives because foregoing it is better aligned with our values, right? So we might, we might be grieving things that we've decided, we've chosen ourselves to stop doing, to stop people, to stop seeing, for example, if they live in other parts of the world, or, you know, all these kinds of things. Loss can be transitional, you know going from childhood to adulthood, for example. And then there's kind of anticipatory loss, you know, which is like that kind of pre-grieving for the things that you haven't lost yet, but will. Haven't lost yet, but will. Exactly. Exactly. I don't know if you would agree with this, but it seems to me like that last category is the hardest because very much like anxiety, you are feeling upset about something that hasn't happened yet. So your brain is free to make the consequences of that event, that loss, as enormous as it possibly can and as tailored to your specific insecurities and fears as possible, as uh, our brains are wont to do. Um, does that, does that, would you agree with that? Yeah. No, absolutely. I remember you know, when I first lost someone very, very close to me, in lots of ways, that was that was a really difficult bit, you know, the kind of anticipatory. We knew it was coming, it was cancer, you know. And I had no idea, you know, what what's that what's it gonna what's it gonna feel like? What's it gonna what's life gonna be like in this in this sort of new world without this person? Um and you just there's so much uncertainty and unknown about it. Um that and then I see probably in a lot of ways, so much of our conversation this season has been almost 
people's people sharing some form of anticipatory loss. And uh, we don't know. It's just the great unknown, isn't it? It's amazing that grief is something that humans have had to deal with for as long as there have been humans. And it doesn't seem like we've gotten particularly better at it. If anything, it kind of seems like we've been get, we've been getting worse. No, and you know, there's this whole idea of like death anxiety. You know, that is, if if you like, the most sort of trans diagnostic phenomenon. You know, no matter what someone's bringing to therapy, pretty much if it's a phobia, if it's OCD, if it's health anxiety, if it's, it's so often what you know, one of the fundamental drivers you, one could argue is is in some way related to our uh, you know, our fear of death, and it's, it's what we all, you know, we we own that together. We, you know, this is something that we all that we all we all fear. And um, it's interesting because the, you know, there's been a a proliferation. We've talked about them with a few of our guests so far about climate cafes uh, as these kind of uh, informal opportunities for people to come together and talk about how the climate crisis is affecting them emotionally, uh, which have been hugely popular, and they're great. You know, they're they're, they're springing up all around the world. They're based on what we in the UK had as death cafes, which were opportunities for people to come together who <laughs> otherwise might be very avoidant of like. <laughs> oh, sorry, I shouldn't be laughing. It just it kind of it kind of sounds like it was they were set up as like a competition for the most difficult place to convince your friends to go. <laughs> you guys want to go to the death cafe later today? <laughs> be a great sort of like. Um, punk like you know sort of counterculture little coffee shop somewhere we're doing it as soon as, as soon as the season <laughs> yeah. is done we're going to set it up that's our next project <laughs> um and yeah and that was this that was because we recognized that we're all we're all a little bit phobic of death and dying we're not very good at processing it usually we do best the best we can to try and suppress any grief feelings or and so i think it's fascinating that this this grief grief process and how we how we're trying to connect with our grieving in a more helpful way um, has has literally gone from uh, has been adopted in the climate movement with these climate cafes that are you know that were born out of this death cafe idea um, because you know there is you know I, I, mean, I said at the top of the episode I was really I, really, I was really nervous about speaking with the Advinda because uh, you know it's such a I, I, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a real trigger for me, you know, and um, there's, you know, potentially sort of loss everywhere. Well, uh, maybe instead of just laughing at your death cafe point, I'll add something of value, which is it reminds me of what we were speaking about with Spencer at the end of the last episode. Uh, his idea that community is going to play a huge role in learning to live with climate change. Uh, and that there's enormous value and support to be found in building and engaging in in communities. Uh, and, and I guess that's also true of processing grief, which is why we have these like uh, cultural rituals around grief, like funerals and wakes and um, uh, even like Halloween or, or um, the, the Day of the Dead in, in Spanish cultures uh, to just ha- to help us process loss as a, as a group. Um, this reminds me of something else we spoke about with Spencer, which I actually think is relevant here, which is the idea that limits are not an inherently bad thing. And in fact, limits can lead to a lot of joy in life by helping you focus on, be more grateful for the things you have and focus on the things that are within your sphere of control, what you can achieve. Um, 
and as, as opposed to getting lost and wanting things that you don't have or trying to achieve things that are just frankly beyond your limits and being dissatisfied with the fact that you have limits. Um, and I think this, this goes back to something I've also heard about in the context of managing grief, which is this idea that grief never goes away. It ne- the, the magnitude of losing something important to you never gets easier or smaller. You just are able to grow your life around that loss as time goes on. So the proportional size of the loss to your life gets smaller, even though the absolute magnitude stays the same. Um, so I think this actually ties together Spencer's idea of limits in that when you experience a great loss, you have run up against a limit in your life. You want something out of your life that you will never be able to get. Um, and also ties in what you were talking about, Patrick, at the beginning of this outro with the idea that the, the two sort of steps of grief are first accepting your loss and then second investing in your life separate to that loss. Uh, it, it just sounds like part of managing grief is really thinking about or trying to figure out how to make your life wonderful despite the fact or inclusive of the fact that you have lost something and realizing that that is, that that is possible. And perhaps even part of the beauty of your life is that it includes the loss uh, as opposed to viewing loss as something that needs to be fought or minimized or destroyed or conquered in, in some sort of way. Is there anything else that you would add to this, this discussion of how to manage, manage grief properly before we end the episode? You know, I think there's, sometimes we can feel, particularly in the client movement, we can feel a pressure to kind of um, turn all of our emotions into something productive, like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is quite a, it's quite a task. It's quite an upheaval. Um, but grief can, you know, it can. People have, you know, I've, I've spoken to people activists, people who work in sustainability, people who've set up incredible foundations and done and they've come from, they started with uh, some, you know, a grief process, right? That was like their step one. They, they saw you know, the bushfires in Australia, for example, or, you know, um, or they, and they, they became, that grief became part of their, part of their story and part of what motivated them to, to go on and do something about it. I think, that's as good a place as any to end the episode. <clears throat> I think two quick announcements. The first is we've had a bit of a shuffle in the order of our remaining guests. So if you are interested, you can go to our website, www.livingonachangingplanet.com and check out the order and release dates for the remaining episodes. The second is, as we were talking about at the beginning of this outro, when when Pat and I first sat down to design this season, we made a list of the types of conversations we wanted it to include. And there was one particular conversation that we really struggled to find a guest who could have that conversation. And in fact, we thought that we were not going to be able to have that conversation at all uh, up until four weeks ago, uh, when we, we, we found someone who was both willing and capable to sit down with us and have that conversation. I'm not going to say any more than that now, except to say that we have another guest joining the season 
who we're very excited about, maybe maybe even a little trepidatious about, but it's going to be an incredibly important conversation. And we will have more details for you in the next two weeks or so. So stay tuned for more details about that. Next week, we have a conversation with two guests at once, Doctors Mark Maslin and Matt Winning. Patrick, is there anything you want to say about that episode before we close? Uh, no, it's just it, it's our it's our only double header of the season. Um, Mark, fantastic uh, system science um, guy from UCL, and Matt Winning. The <laughs> is that his his technical title, Earth System Science Guy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's him. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like Bill Nye, the Science Guy's <laughs> yeah, dorky <exactly>. cousin. <laughs> <laughs> Captain Planet and uh, Matt Winning, who is a climate comedian, uh, who's finding all kinds of inventive ways of communicating and processing his climate emotions as well. So yeah, it's a good conversation.